0: Two years later, the storm is starting This up
1: Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of Graveyard Coffee Talk. We're your hosts. Amanda. And Corinne. And we're silly tonight, people. I say tonight, I don't know when you're listening to this, but it's night for us.
0: Yeah, if you listened to last week's episode, we're recording this immediately afterwards.
1: So chaos reigns. It's, um, yeah, I'm normally getting Freddie for bed right now, and instead I poured myself a second bourbon. <laughs> Is it a Mary T pour? It's another Mary T pour. But last, if I you just... don't know what,
0: <laughs> if you don't know what that means, go back, listen to last week's episode. You should anyway. It was a fantastic interview with someone who put up with us for an hour.
1: So it's very impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, no. For for people who don't have time to go back and listen to it, a Mary T pour is what happens when my mother pours bourbon. Her name being Mary uh, T. It, it's a family in joke and will get you shitfaced very quickly. Um, it will. <laughs> and so confirm. <laughs> so that's
0: what I'm drinking. Uh, I am finishing up the Fall City Beer Moon Fuel Coffee Stout. Uh and at some point, my wonderful husband is going to bring me a glass of wine because that's what I need
1: tonight. It is what you need, and it's because um, he's a good and kind husband. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Corinne, what is our card
0: for this week's episode?
1: I am back to Murder of Crows Tarot because this is a multi-recording episode, and it's easier to draw multiple cards at once than to try and faff around with multiple decks.
0: Work smarter, not harder,
1: children. Exactly, and this card is the Six of Swords, which is a passage leaving behind the unknown. And y'all, we are we are leaving behind the unknown. This is an experimental new episode. I hope you like it because we like the idea. And Amanda, we're going to tell the people what we're going to do. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to see if we
0: interpreted this idea at all the same. Uh, We thought that it would be fun to periodically pick a topic, not necessarily the same topic that we have covered before, and go over how and where that topic or idea has shown up in pop culture throughout history. Um, I... I'm really excited about this. I actually went a bit more academic
1: than I thought that I would for this one. I Um, went much less academic. And I also finished these notes three hours before we recorded. Hell yeah. So my apologies, dudes and dudettes. And those who don't ascribe to the dude binary.
0: Those were all words that you said in an order.
1: Um, yeah, second bourbon.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. Mary T pores for me. <laughs> Mary T <tea laughs> pores. Uh So, to show you what sort of headspace I was in when I started my notes, oh. uh, my notes are currently titled "Werewolves in Pop Culture." Oh dear. <laughs> oh, so. All right. Uh, So, as you might guess, for our first edition of Corinne and Amanda Take on Pop Culture, I am covering the history of werewolves as they present in pop culture. And before I end this segment, the words pop culture will no longer sound like real words because I just said it twice in a sentence. Yep. Anywho, uh, I'll be up front. This is. an incredibly eurocentric western review because those are the rabbit holes i went down yeah and i am stepping on your toes quite a bit karen uh there's a lot of european history because cool. i just
1: gave you a thumbs up and i realized that no one can actually fucking see what i'm doing because we record a podcast
0: yeah (laughs) it's good it's good we're We're good. good Um, And just some content warnings for discussions of mental health misinformation and stigmas ahead. Okay. Um, So heads up for anyone listening. So first, I found an article on JSTOR Daily called Depressed People Aren't Villains, Nor Are They Werewolves by Casey Mead Brewer. Ooh uh the article is well worth reading in full um i've got it linked in my notes those will be up on our site when the episode goes live uh and the article goes into the historical tendency to view mental health issues as a moral failing Mm. which makes it much easier to remove societal responsibility okay Uh, you know medical treatment won't expel the devil from your gray matter so why bother yeah Uh, so the article brings up the very long history of connecting the idea of werewolves with symptoms of mental disorders. Uh, Johann Vincinti's Liber de Adversaris Magicas Artes. Whew, this is a great thing to try to pronounce after some beer. A witchcraft text, which was published in 1475 contained a chapter on werewolves in which it stated that lycanthropy was a delusion produced by the devil. Oh, so, I I thought that was interesting that it's not just lycanthropy is the devil's responsibility. The devil turned him into a wolf. It's lycanthropy is a delusion produced by the devil.
1: Interesting, especially given what we know about clinical lycanthropy. Yes. Huh. Thank and you. And for people who are curious about clinical lycanthropy we do discuss that in our episode on werewolves yes but you can always go back and listen to yep. uh,
0: in the 16th century writer Johann Wehr argued that werewolves were the mentally ill or demons masquerading as wolves totes okay. the same thing
1: yeah um, I know that I personally am a demon and also mentally ill often
0: masquerade as wolves.
1: Yeah. Just Gotta let that inner wolf out. Makes perfect you know, sense. I, this guy was on to something. Listen to Shakira.
0: There's a she-wolf in your closet. Let her out so she can breathe.
1: <laughs> Amanda. Amanda, what the fuck? <laughs> You're okay. welcome. I'm good.
0: And that belief that mental illnesses are a result of demonic activity or moral failings is unfortunately not lost to antiquity according to a 2012 pew research survey a majority of u.s adults believe in demonic possession with 63 percent of those believers being in the 18 to 29 age range
1: so A really interesting article on The Atlantic talking about the rise of exorcisms in the last decade or so.
0: Yeah, I hate that a lot uh, because that really increases the risk of someone's mental illness being blamed on an outside evil, which will restrict that person's access to proper medical care.
1: Now, in the Catholic Church, which is the... What they were writing from the perspective of and from the perspective w- with which i am most familiar if you are a candidate for an exorcism you have to go through a battery of psychological exams before they will even consider doing a full exorcism on you like that is part of the whole system it's a very important part because they do recognize that mental illness can cause such horrible suffering and you want to put that external blame somewhere but sometimes it's not external blame it's you got some bug-fuck crazy chemicals in your head that need to right. be just fixed or there is some not situational what's the word i'm looking for systemic issue yeah that has to be addressed before you can start healing and recovering so i will give the catholic church that in in modern exorcism
0: mm-hmm. um ba, 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 where did sorry, I heard? got on a,
1: sh- a shoe yeah no, you're good, a soapbox is what those are called not a, no. a shit box I said shoe box oh, <laughs> I, I said shoe box not shit box, oh, but time. I meant soapbox. <laughs>
0: Oh, Mary T pours. (laughs) Uh, But this article closes with perhaps my favorite line. Okay. Quote, misrepresentations of the nature of mental illness, not only needlessly endanger and marginalize those suffering from mental disorders, but they also allow us to indulge in something that's arguably immoral itself. A rich, delicious layer of willful ignorance.
1: Ooh. Oh, that's well written. Yes. Um, So, again,
0: I didn't pull too much of the werewolf in on that one, but I thought that article was incredibly well written, incredibly well researched, and worth putting on people's radar. Absolutely. Um, And now to move on to the much less depressing subject of the existential dread of the environment going to shit all around us. Oh, great. Yeah. Thanks, Amanda. You're welcome. And yes, this does lead to werewolves. Pinky swear. (laughs) So we've discussed briefly and very ineloquently on this podcast in previous episodes, how the Victorian obsession with spiritualism and and the my notes. Amanda, what did you write?
1: This is the uh, danger of writing out what you think you're gonna want to say yeah and then hoping that you expressed (laughs) yourself clearly until you open your notes and go ah shit
0: it's true uh anyway so we've discussed briefly and eloquently in previous episodes how the victorian obsession with spiritualism and the occult were a rejection in uh, were in part a rejection of the hyper-rationalism that defined the Georgian period. Okay. Yes. Um, and my notes for this section are pretty based on the article, the werewolf and the 19th century eco-gothic by Janine Hatter. Ooh. Yes. I was so excited to find this. Uh, so there was an explosion of werewolf stories in the Victorian era. Okay. Uh, Specifically, werewolf stories. You know, we know there was an explosion of horror in general, yes. um, but werewolves specifically held a special place. Huh. Okay. In short fiction, especially. Um, <laughs> y'all thought I was joking in the Christmas episode when I said this is a literature podcast. Now.
1: <laughs> oh, good times.
0: You can't separate literature from folklore and pop culture. You just you really can't can. do it. So this explosion of werewolf stories took the rejection of rationalism and folded in the new fear popping up across England of the loss of nature as people knew it during the industrial revolution. Okay. Uh quote from the article, "Werewolves are an effective rhetorical device for examining ecological issues because they have a long folkloric history that demonstrates them evolving with their changing environments." Oh, it's argued that werewolves in the literature of the period are a way to focus on the permanence of nature and analyze humankind's
1: relationship with it. Ooh. Okay. I really want to read this article now.
0: Oh, you should. It's, it's going to be linked in my show notes and I can send it to you um, once we're done recording because it was incredibly well-written. I didn't want to state it verbatim. So I'm definitely not including everything in this segment um and it is well worth reading Uh, really really well done okay awesome yes so werewolf stories of the time period were often set in the middle ages okay as a reaction to the rapid industrialization taking place because remember this was a huge upheaval oh for Uh, sure people were flocking to cities for the job opportunities leaving the countryside behind Uh, The wetlands in England were being drained to make way for, quote, modern farms and factories. The Victorian obsession with the exotic and the wide reach of the British Empire led to the introduction of invasive species of plants that started to outcompete native plants at this time. Okay. So someone who was in their 40s during this period... Could look outside their window and not recognize the countryside as what they grew up with, huh? And it was a major mindfuck. Yeah. Um, animals were going and were going extinct, or had their numbers dwindle dramatically as habitats were destroyed um and you know none of this sounds familiar (laughs) we've learned from the past we've stopped prioritizing businesses over the health
1: of the planet right definitely not at all familiar with any of this or even the whole looking out and not experiencing seasons the way we used to when we were children yeah definitely not a thing yep uh yeah
0: so it's argued that in addition to the actual werewolves in the story Mm in these stories uh, (coughs) mirroring man's uh relationship with nature the landscapes themselves can be seen as lycanthropic in these stories ooh! not only is it the nature sheltering and in cases where the moon is the cause of the shift creating Mm. the werewolf okay the nature itself, the landscapes themselves are often written with references to the world itself growing in resentment towards mankind. ooh, And towards ooh. the forced changes happening. Um, and while it, to the best of my knowledge, I am definitely not an expert in Victorian werewolf literature, believe it or not um
1: hey someone else we just gave you a thesis
0: (laughs) i would be surprised if it hasn't been done but i also know nothing yeah so uh you know i i don't believe from reading this article that these stories ever went to the logical conclusion of the earth itself taking revenge though it could be argued that the presence of the werewolf itself
1: is, is that revenge
0: that revenge i like it and when you think about werewolf stories even ones that i think have withstood the test of time and are part of the pop culture lexicon um you know it's not necessarily a werewolf proper but i'm thinking the hound of the baskervilles yeah um these stories aren't happening in london her- yes these these stories are happening in the countryside in the moors either in small villages or manor houses and it is this forsaken countryside yeah. creating something uniquely anti-human
1: interesting which I just Ooh. loved. I just thought that was really cool. I really need to read that article. Yes, it's, it's great.
0: I didn't touch on nearly enough. Of course. Um, and so one day I'll do some digging into what I originally thought this segment would be about, like <laughs> the theories behind when and why werewolves went from horrifying monsters to <laughs> symbols and romance novel heroes. Um, Today is not that day because sometimes you find an article and you click on an article and then you read. And then you're like, huh, I wonder. And so then you type a couple more things into Google and then you find more articles. And
1: I know this cycle well. Um, Yeah. What you're going to be hearing is essentially what I yelled at my husband about for 20 minutes. Perfect. So... Um,
0: So that's my segment. I know it's a little shorter than I usually do, but I didn't want to try to force another um, perspective in.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, So, to the surprise of probably no one, because I'm lazy. I'm I'm a lazy person. Uh,
0: I reject that narrative.
1: I decided that in topics that we've covered in pop culture, I was going to talk about some of the various yokai that have come up in our discussions of folklore. Um, I am an avowed weeb and have been since I was 14. So uh, let me set the scene so that you understand my first forays into anime, into Japanese media in general. Picture this. Fourteen-year-old me has just come out of Baxter Avenue Theater, having seen Spirited Away with my new friends from high school. I have little to no knowledge of Japanese culture, and I have just been dazzled by spectacle. But I do not understand the guests at Yubaba's uh, Bathhouse. I'm just confounded. Mm -hmm. I quickly follow this up by getting deeply obsessed with Inuyasha. Which was really my core introduction to the concept of yokai in general. And the fog lifts, and I start learning how to do things like researching aspects of Japanese culture that I don't understand. And 20 years later, here I am recording a podcast episode on folklore. And I have an episode to gush over just how much I fucking love this. Amazing. <laughs> so, uh, our journey into how this connects. How this connects to today's topic actually started while I was researching Kappa lore for the Mermaid episode. Uh, While I was perusing sources, I found an article called The Yokai in the Database, which apparently cited Inuyasha, which is my first great anime obsession, as we've just established. Uh, So I downloaded that and put it into the growing horde of articles that I have called Pretentious Folklore Articles. And to note, the articles aren't pretentious. I am. <laughs> so listen I know who I am uh-huh. so one of the primary points of the article was connecting the tendency of anime fans known here in the west as otaku though I will point out that the word has a broader meaning in Japan um you know it's not just anime fans who are otaku you could be a train otaku for example okay um Otaku like to collect and analyze data surrounding their favorite topic of choice. So for anime and manga, that is frequently data around their favorite stories, their characters, and all those traits and characteristics that make up those stories and those characters. And the author was connecting that to the tradition of compendiums of yokai that were written, especially in like the Edo and Meiji eras. Um, which I thought was kind of an interesting connection to medieval bestiaries. You know, we all want to collect knowledge of of that stuff that's just outside of our normal experiences, you know? So the author, uh, Deborah Shamoon, expands that into how in contemporary times, yokai were brought into the popular imagination in two different ways. The first way was advertising. Um towns still use kappa as mascots, for example. Really? Yes. Kappa are very popular in advertising. Uh, and like towns have their mascots. That's a big deal. Uh, so that was a big way that kind of preserved the concept of yokai in culture. And then um there was also the works of Mizuki Shigeru, whose popular manga, Gugugu no Kitaro, from the 1960s. Helped kind of reignite an interest in and further categorization of yokai. Um, several other authors have written about the importance of Gugu no Kitaro as bringing yokai back into pop culture in Japan. Uh, shigeru san also would go on to write about uh, other kinds of yokai. So, when like, writing about European yokai, for example, he talks about witches, he talks about werewolves. Oh, I love that. I, yeah, it's really great. Um, the article's fantastic. So that brings me to where some of my favorite depictions of yokai come in. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, two of my earliest experiences with Japanese media, media were Spirited Away and Inuyasha, both of which are deeply entwined <laughs> with yokai, kami, and other aspects of Japanese culture and folklore. So in Spirited Away, you have our young heroine, Chihiro, who passes into the world of gods, spirits, and monsters, many of which are likely unfamiliar to Westerners like us. So my personal favorite has always been that very awkward but kindly daikon radish spirit that she meets in the elevator. Yes. I love him. I think he's a him. I've decided he's a him. Um, and there are also like the Susu Watari, which are the little sit sprites that apparently eat sprinkles and the little fuzzballs and yes. i love them.
0: I every time i think sit sprites i just think my neighbor totoro.
1: I'm I, i'm and i'm going to bring them in. Hey. So, uh to expand a little bit on this, uh let's touch a little bit on studio ghibli films. Cuz Hayao Miyazaki frequently draws a yokai and other what oh, f- th- f- who You're- are first seen Hello? Can you, you hear broke
0: me? up there for a second.
1: Ah, sorry. Uh, anyway, so Hayao Miyazaki frequently draws upon Yokai and other folklore topics in his work. So, like, this is Suatari, who are first seen in My Neighbor Totoro from 1989. Um, Totoro, I always love, is the little girls couldn't say the English word troll. And that's where Totoro comes from. Really? Yeah, So it's implied that their dad is some sort of folklore professor. Right. So he's told them stories about European trolls. But May can't say troll because you've got those phonemes that you don't find in Japanese. Right. I think troll is Tororo. And she came up with Totoro. Yeah. I love that. So the other one that I want to pull in is... It's so dumb. So logically, logically, I knew Princess Mononoke deals heavily in folkloric themes. Classic film, right? Mm-hmm. So what I did not realize was how the title actually indicates those themes. um Ooh. Yeah. So in Michael Dylan Foster's The Book of Yōkai, which is that book that I bought a few months ago, and I finally get to pull it in. I'm so excited! Yeah. Uh, He explains how Japanese language and literature has referred to yokai through the ages. So yokai as a signifier for monsters, demons, spirits, etc. is actually fairly recent. Uh, It started being used in a scholarly sense in the Meiji era and then became more popular in the 20th century, uh, especially because of the works of Mizuki Shigeru. Uh, But in the Heian period, which is the late 8th century to about the end of the 12th century, uh, the most common word was a mononoke. To quote Uh, Foster's book, in the Heian period, for example, spooky and unexplainable things were often called mononoke. However, we translate it, though, mononoke during the Heian period indicated danger, uncertainty, and terror, something lurking out there just beyond reach intending to do you harm interesting and i'm sure this is
0: information that people in japan are like yes and
1: yeah and like i can't i can't expect myself to know classical japanese i like i can't expect Um, myself to know that i'm sorry corinne can't you not before i've had more bourbon (laughs) bitch Uh, um anyway i would like you to know that um, my face as I read this and made that connection to Princess Mononoke was basically the shocked Pikachu meme. I believe it. That was, that, I'm like, I I felt really dumb. But I shouldn't have, because again, what are the odds that a 35-year-old white woman in the United States is going to know classical Japanese when she has a French degree? Fair. Um, so from there, I'm going to start touching a little bit on Inuyasha, which also draws deeply from yokai lore. Uh, you know, our titular character is a half-dog yokai, which it's pointed out is kind of interesting because there's not actually a lot of dog yokai in Japanese folklore. They're not they're not as common uh, as opposed to like cats, foxes, tanuki, uh, apparently river otters, which makes me sad because apparently there used to be river otters in Japan that they've been declared extinct since 2012 oh that made me really sad that's so recent um last time anybody reported c1 was like the 1970s they were really popular for fur oh yeah um but anyway in the series many other members of the cast and the villains that they face are also drawn from classical yokai uh like that very first episode that very first episode with fucking madam centipede who scares the shit out of me.
0: Fun fact. I've never watched
1: it in my life. Amanda we're going to have to have a watch party. <laughs> Corinne there are so many episodes. That is such a commitment. It's fine. We'll get drunk. We'll get drunk and we'll watch you Yasha. I'm gonna. I'm going to make this happen. In 2023. Okay <laughs> so anyway. There is a giant fucking centipede lady. And she's scary as shit. And that is in fact an actual yokai from Japanese folklore. Uh, They're referred to as mukare. And the mm-hmm. mukare centipede is a real fucking centipede, and I'm mad about it. I am angry about this fact, Amanda. You should be. It's like the
0: learning about the spiders in Australia. Yeah. It's like that. Where I'm just like, you know, perhaps there are places that I am not meant to
1: ever go. But I want to go to Japan. Amanda, I want to go there. I want to go to there, but I do not want to meet the centipede. Um. Yeah. Anyway. And I also just learned today, like today, the day we are recording this, there's uh, the character Sango, who's like a demon fighter and she's got a giant flying cat. And the cat's name is Kirara, which I mm-hmm. love. Kirara is a freaking nekomata. It's got the two tails. I should have realized this again with the shocked pikachu face. And then also on the hero side of things there's the character Shippo who is a very young kitsune. And that is where I am going to talk about a weird thing that I have noticed specifically oh. about kitsune and western literature. I can think of 3 specific examples, two of which are romance novels. Uh in terms of in terms of use of Kitsune. Uh, in terms of where I encountered them, the earliest is actually Shannon McGuire's October Day series, which includes Luna, who's described as being uh, Kitsune. Um, but I do want to note for listeners who might not be familiar with October, the October Day series, um, it didn't get walked back, but Shannon McGuire stopped mentioning that so much uh, because part of the world building that she developed was that all the fae in her novel are descended from Oberon to Tanya and Maeve. And she was like, oh, I didn't think about this in terms of asserting that a specifically Japanese folkloric creature is suddenly descended from these European uh, European figures. And I don't like that, and I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. And that's something that she has explicitly talked about in the past. So, kind of an outlier in that series, for what it's worth. Um. But then we're going to get into romance novels, because I really fucking love fantasy romance. Who doesn't?
0: I just do. Kindle Unlimited is a gift and a curse.
1: Then I have a series for you. Yes. We'll get to it. it. So the first series is The Shadow of the Fox Trilogy by Julie Kagawa, which I read a few years ago. Um, I want to say I was reading it early pandemic. The books were, I don't remember exactly how the books were published. I should really know this. But I, I know I was reading them in our old apartment before I moved into the house. Okay. So the Shadow of the Fox trilogy is A, really fun. B, features a young half kitsune woman as the main protagonist. And C, really drove home just how much Japanese folklore I explicitly only know from watching Inuyasha. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it is set in the mythic past, and honestly, it is a blast to read. Uh, it's Harlequin's teen line. It's super fun. I didn't realize Harlequin had a
0: teen line.
1: I didn't know that until I was on, like, the second book. Uh, also, Amazing. Julie also, Ka- Julie Kagawa lives in Kentucky, and you know I am always here to support a local author. Mm-hmm found out that the author of the book I
0: just finished today lives in central Kentucky.
1: Nice. Yeah. Love that. I'm not sure if Julie Kagawa lives in Louisville or not, but I know she's a Kentucky girl these days. So, here for that. Uh, and then, last year, I got sucked in by some very well-done targeted advertising. And tore through a series that is on Kindle Unlimited. It is the Red Winter Trilogy by Annette Marie. And this romance Uh trilogy is set in the modern day. And the main character is a young woman who is destined to become the (laughs) avatar of the Okami Amaterasu. Uh, She rescues a fox who turns out to be a kitsune man. Um, Yeah. Hijinks ensue. It's batshit. Um, There is also a very broody Tengu character who I love because I know who I am. I'm sorry. I'm still stuck. Did you say hijinks? I did. Did I say that wrong? Isn't it hijinks? It probably is. I'm stupid. I'm bad at it.
0: Have I said that word wrong my
1: whole life? I think probably I'm saying it wrong because I'm also the person who thought the word beige was pronounced beige. And that beige and beige were different colors. Turns out I'm very wrong.
0: What color did you think beige was? I have to know.
1: I didn't know. I think in my head beige was more tan and beige was more on the white side of things, but it made greige make a lot more sense. Because I thought that was grige.
0: Amazing. We are learning so much about each other this episode.
1: I'm an adult. Mm -hmm. I have a college degree and I write for a living. I used to write about paint colors. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Oh, good times. Uh, Anyway, um, I will say the book series does do one thing that I don't love. Which is where the books are established as being set during, like, a very specific time period, and they do fuck all with that as a setting. Oh. And it is not the first time that I've encountered it, but it is such a pet peeve. It is such a pet peeve of mine. I'm like, why are you going to establish this as being set in the modern day when everything is in, like, this mythic mirror realm? Why bother?
0: Uh, To save myself from potential anachronisms as I write.
1: And I read another book series that was explicitly set during the Napoleonic Wars, and they did nothing with that. Nothing. And I'm still mad about it. There's a
0: cat committing war crimes with his butt
1: on my desk, right by my face. Oh, sneaky cat. (laughs) Anyway, I will leave you with one last little bit, because Hunter will yell at me if I miss this opportunity. That while my encounters with yokai largely come from manga and anime, they are also incredibly common in video games, including series like Super Mario. You know that flying raccoon costume? It's Tanuki. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, one of the biggest examples of this is probably Pokemon, which also gets excite- also gets cited in the Book of Yokai. Uh-huh. Um, many many Pokemon are inspired by Japanese folklore.
0: I, and I can is- think of Bullpicks and Ninetales. Yeah. Right there. They,
1: there is, of course, a, a really nice parallel between gotta collect all this Pokemon and the databases of Yokai that were mentioned in Deborah Shimun's article. Yeah. So, yeah, I know. Hunter talked about, you know, he would play all these JRPGs back in the day and knew nothing about Japanese culture. I'd be like, uh, an umbrella with an eye on it. Okay, that's weird. Japan just must be weird. And then as an adult being like, oh, this is actually a classical Yohai. Okay, got it. It's
0: like, oh, these things have a cultural context.
1: Yeah. I just, I really love how for for me, for my husband, and I'm sure for a lot of other people, our first experiences with, specifically in this case, Japanese culture, were devoid of context we are missing absolutely crucial bits of understanding, but it's become so timeless. We kind of absorb it over over our experiences. Mm -hmm. And then because it becomes more and more familiar, it becomes more accessible. People are actually like taking the time to explain it, break it down. It's not, here's this weird thing from Japan. It's, oh, hey, here's this thing and here's the cultural significance. I hadn't thought about it, but I I wonder how much of that is from like, do you remember? And I I don't know if you had the same experience as I did, but I would illegally download my animes with my fan subs.
0: I would never.
1: And she's nodding guys. (laughs) She's nodding because you don't get to see this shit. Um, but a lot of fan translators would actually add cultural context to their translations. I have seen that. Um, yeah. I I was doing this back in the day when you had to download separate files for the translation and the episode and smoosh them together. Let me tell you about the time I accidentally downloaded the, uh, the Chinese Hanzu. Subs and not the English subs. It's not a good day. That was not a good day.
0: Do not understand the work we had to go through to get media.
1: To get it legally. And I would go to like the zone. And rent VHSs and DVDs that had like four episodes on them.
0: What was the store? FYE.
1: Yes, that is where I bought my first copy of Princess Okay on VHS.
0: Um, I never got to buy anything there. But I definitely went there with friends
1: in high school to buy uh, Fruits Basket. I rented Fruits Basket from the Zone. <laughs> and now, and now there's friggin' dubs. Where I can watch it the same freaking day in English. Like, I didn't even have to rely on subtitles. I can watch the English language dub same day. Kids today do not know how lucky they are if they want to be a weeb. They don't. Back in my day. (laughs) Oh, I'm out of bourbon. Corinne. It's fine. Oh, my God. I don't have to be human until at least 10 a.m. tomorrow. It's good. Oh, and just so
0: you guys know, Corinne is very on brand when she comes to our Sunday game days because she always comes with coffee.
1: I do. I do always come with coffee. It's why I'm always late. Sorry. And you're still never last. So it's fine. And I bring coffee. I share. I bring coffee for everybody else, too. It's true.
0: It's true. Corinne is a vital member of the team. Speaking of, um, text me your order for tomorrow. Even if the Dice don't want Corinne to be a vital Alive. member of the team.
1: <laughs> Alive. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I have uh, the Wheaton Dice curse. Oh
0: Well, this Fine. was fun.
1: This was fun. This
0: was fun. Let us know. You guys, like, talk to us on Twitter or Instagram, you know, if you liked this style
1: of episode. Or shoot us an email. My mother-in-law emails us. That's true. Yeah. We're really nice, and we will respond to you.
0: There was definitely something I was about to say, and then we went off on a tangent. Oh, this doesn't need to be in the episode, but... If you get around to watching Chainsaw Man, go with the sub. Sub is better than the dub. By a lot. There's one character who shows up in episode two whose American dub voice. I cannot. It is nails on a chalkboard for me.
1: That's fair. There are certain series where I am dub only. There are certain series where I am sub only. And the rest of it depends on how much attention I can pay to the screen while I'm watching it. Because my Japanese is really bad. So, like, if I can't pay attention to the screen, it's got to be in English. Yeah. Okay. On that note, now that we have expounded on our opinions on Sub versus Dub, please feel free to at me. I won't fight you because I don't give a shit. I think that's our episode. I think so.
0: Um,
1: Oh, Corinne. What? We
0: failed our last episode.
1: Because we did not end it properly. We did fail our last episode. Shit. Okay.
0: I'm going to have to like record it for you to tack
1: on. I'll just copy paste it from this. Okay. So thank you guys for
0: listening. Uh, We really, we really do appreciate everyone who listens. Um y'all are the
1: best. You really are. I did not think that when we started this year and a half ago Yeah. That we'd still be doing this.
0: Yeah. I really thought that like we'd release ten episodes, realize literally no one listened to it and move on with our lives. But here we are. We're really grateful. So, thank you guys. Yeah. Um, and on that note, uh, sweet dreams and
1: caffeinated nightmares, everyone. Good night. No, motherfucker, stop. <laughs> stop. Stop the recording. Thank you for listening to Graveyard Coffee Talk. Our theme music is Pretty Little Dead Girls by and McGuire. Copyright 2006 and used with permission. Our cover art is by Kyle Welsh. If you want to keep the chat going, please visit our website at GraveyardCoffeeTalk.com for transcripts, episode notes, and more. Follow us on Instagram at GraveyardCoffeeTalkPod or on Twitter at Talk Graveyard. The they say she's looking long